what's up guys welcome to another happy hour in this installment of the haunted happy hour we're gonna go a little outside of the paranormal and we're actually going to dive into true crime territory and we're gonna talk about serial killers yeah, so I just wanted to start off by saying I know that the audio might be weird. I know the last, the conspiracy episode we did, our volumes are kind of weird. We're still recording remotely, and that goes for our normal episodes and pretty much everything we do. We're on different equipment, we're on different computers, we're in different environments, so sorry about that. So we are going to, we each pulled some serial killers. Now, we are not going to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer. Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez. Y'all know about them. You done exactly. them. We tried to pull some that maybe you haven't really heard of. We also have no intention of being disrespectful to victims, families, etc. We are not going to go into any major detail, like major, major gruesome, gruesome detail. Like obviously we're gonna talk about methods of killing and yeah. things like that but i'm not gonna like look at a picture and like describe it to you guys so you know it's not gonna be any worse than talking about like scenes in a horror movie but just know that these are real so if that makes you uncomfortable since this is not normally a true crime podcast you can skip this episode but exactly also we're not gonna go into every single little detail and every killing so if you're fascinated look upon yourself Correct. We're going to talk about them, brief overview, and probably move on from there. Again, we are not a true crime podcast. We didn't do extensive research. We just, you know, I think most horror fans kind of have to be also into true crime to some extent. I think they yeah. go hand in hand. So Agreed. You know. But real quick, just to talk about serial killers, there's, I'm sure you guys know, but this is just the definition of a serial killer. A serial killer is typically a person who murders three or more people, usually in service of abnormal psychological gratification, with the murders taking place over more than a month and including a significant period of time between them. So, you know, three or more murders, sometimes extend it to four or lessen it to two. The lessen it to two, I think nowadays, especially because it's a lot harder to be a serial killer now than it was mm, in like yeah. the you know, pre-80s, pre-computer, pre-forensics, you know, top-tier technology. You know, it was a lot easier when we didn't have awesome computer science fingerprint analysis. And we had fingerprint analysis, but our computers couldn't put together patterns quite as easily. There wasn't great tracing technology. So, you know. That's fair. I, I have a problem with it, though. I feel like two kills could be one time. It could be a spree murder. You kill your parents as a teenage kid. That's my only problem with it. Yeah. And it does mean, have to be separated, but... Yeah, which I think would be more of like a spree killer because they're yeah. different. I actually am more into spree killers than I am serial killers. Just talking about like true crime fascinations. I know a lot about serial... Well, I'm not going to say a lot moderate amount about serial killers I know a lot more about spree killers so it was really hard for me to not be like Kristen I'm gonna put like one little spree killer on here but see I'm the opposite I find serial killers fascinating so I had to cut mine down and I finally told you I was like I have eight I can't go any less sorry <laughs> fine I'm gonna be like kicking back drinking my <laughs> which by the way let me just <laughs> yeah crack that open 
So, you know, you're going to kind of take a lead on this one and I'm just going to listen to what you found, which will be super interesting because like we said, we tried to find ones that neither one of us had heard of. Like I tried to find ones that you had never heard of and you know, same thing. So hopefully you've never heard of these or if you have, maybe you hadn't heard of all of these. So, you know, right. I also tried to scatter around. So I chose, you know, the highest kill count. I chose female ones. I chose ethnicities. I chose all kinds of stuff. So let's see what's going on. I wanted to start this out on my part with, in the conspiracy theories, Amanda mentioned a conspiracy theory about Jack the Ripper and Lewis Carroll in the last episode. And I kind of briefly touched on the fact that I thought that it was H.H. Holmes as Jack the Ripper, so I figured let's continue. We're talking about serial killers now. I'll talk about why I think H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper were the same person. Interesting. All right. So there are almost 30 potential Jack the Ripper identities, including Prince Albert, who was the grandson of Queen Victoria, and Lewis Carroll, as you heard in our last Haunted Happy Hour, and hundreds of other theories. So Please look into it for yourself. Some are, like, crazy interesting. For me, I think that Jack the Ripper was H.H. Holmes. Jack the Ripper is known to have surgical skill. And here's the point. At a young age, a classmate saw he was afraid of a skeleton at the local doctor's office, and they forced, then mudge it, to touch it. Instead of scaring him, he became fascinated. He went on to medical school to become a surgeon, and in doing so, he began his lifelong criminal work by using the school cadavers to defraud insurance companies out of life insurance policies. Hmm. Once he started killing, he would even work both sides of the con and strip the bodies of flesh, reconstruct the skeleton, and sell them to medical schools. So obviously, he has the surgical skill. Yeah. That's so smart. Sorry, that's so smart with the life insurance stuff, though. Like you just have like bodies filling, and you're like, "This is that person." Like you owe me money. (laughs) Exactly. Especially back then, you could easily just burn a body, and they're like, "Yeah, sure, it's that." They didn't have as many things that you have to match up, you know, fingerprints, stuff like that. Here's your money. No dental records. Like exactly. Jack the Ripper was active in London from April third, eighteen eighty-eight, to February thirteenth, eighteen ninety-one. Holmes' paper trail goes mysteriously quiet for this track of time. He was in the process of building the murder castle in Chicago and was under fire for missed payments to the builders, so it would make sense that he would want to get out of town and let things die down, as he had done numerous times in the past when things were tense from all of his frauds to insurance companies. From ship's logs, we have found reference to an H. Holmes traveling to the UK and from the US before the murders and back after the murders. First murder on record for H.H. Holmes, so when he got back to the U.S., was December 25th, 1891. Which, as I said in the beginning, the Jack the Ripper murders finished February 13th, 1891. So he could have crossed the ocean, come back, and committed his first murder here. Mm-hmm. And then there's the miscellaneous evidence. This is the stuff that people don't really believe. The, the Dear Boss letter. So there was a letter that Jack the Ripper supposedly actually most people think it's a hoax sent out saying dear boss to the police detectives about who he was but if it's not a hoax it was actually probably written by an american they have figured out wow yep also miscellaneous evidence around the area that the jack the ripper killings were happening there was an american tenant at the time at one of the boarding houses 
there are reports of an American man staying in a boarding house nearby with a set of knives, and he resembled Holmes. It's small evidence, but those are the reasons why I think. I mean, I would... There are... You know, I wonder if this is, like, really off track. You know, like, completely different conversation. Do you you think that, like, when we die, (laughs) you just get the knowledge of like all of the unanswered questions or do you think that like we'll just never know like even after death like you'll just never know you know hmm. how are you just i don't think we'll ever know i don't think there's like that is mad i don't think there's like a repository of information out there i think we just keep coming back oh, make different true. choices and then just never find out the same information and then we just have these conversations forever and ever and then in like 200 years we're gonna be like i wonder who the fuck jack the ripper was <laughs> Exactly. I mean, look at, I always look at the fact that, because I just love Egypt, the whole Egyptian reign was 3,000 years long. I guarantee you a random murder that happened in the beginning of that reign was not even remembered as a blip at the end. Yeah. So, yeah, we probably just don't know. That sucks. (laughs) You just want to find it all out. Well, yeah, I want to die, and then all of the questions I've ever had, I just know, you know? <laughs> Look, what's the point? Sorry, that's kind of dark. Okay, well... Jesus, what's the point? Like, that's deep. <laughs> I don't mean that. If you're looking for reasons to keep going, you might find the answers. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, so my next serial killer is the person who has killed the most ever that yeah. we know of. Interesting. Okay. Louis Garavito from Colombia, known as The Beast, is widely considered the most prolific serial killer in modern history, having been convicted, convicted, of at least 138 murders. Born in 1957, he was a victim of physical abuse by his father and sexual abuse by a close family friend. His victims were clearly identified by their age, gender, and social status. He would target boys between the ages of 6 to 16 who were either homeless, peasants, or orphaned. He would approach the young boys either on the crowded streets or alone in the countryside and lure them away by bribing them with small gifts such as money, candy, or odd jobs. Once he had the trust of a child, he would walk with the boy until they were tired and vulnerable, which then made them easy to handle. First, their hands were bound. Then he would remove all their clothes and proceed to torture, rape, and sometimes decapitate them. Oh, Jesus. Usually, so it's not just a killer either. Like, he can't just, like, kill people. He just got to, no. like... he's the beast. It's Fuck them all intense. up. God. Yeah. Usually, the boy would endure prolonged rape and torture by having his buttocks stabbed and sharpened objects inserted into his anus. His testicles were often severed and placed into his mouth. The bodies of the children were all found completely naked and all bore bite marks and signs of anal penetration. Bottles of lubricant were found near the bodies, along with empty liquor bottles. Most corpses showed signs of prolonged torture. Beginning in 1992, boys between the ages of 6 through 16 began disappearing rapidly from the streets of Colombia. Due to the decades-long civil war, many children in Colombia were poor, homeless, or orphaned. For years, these murders had gone unnoticed because many of the victims had no police report filed on their disappearance. Clusters of bodies had begun popping up all over Colombia, yet authorities did not take much notice until 1997 when a mass graves were uncovered. Garavito was sentenced to 1,853 years and nine days in prison, the lengthiest sentence in Colombian history. However, 
this is the sad part, Colombian law limits imprisonment to 40 years. And because Garavito, yeah, I know. And because Garavito helped police find the victim's bodies, his sentence was further reduced to 22 years. Garavito is currently serving his sentence in a maximum security prison in uh, Valendapar in the department of El Cesar in Colombia. He is held separately from all other prisoners because it is feared that he would be killed immediately. He should be killed immediately! That's what I was going to say. So basically what you're telling me is whenever he's released, we need to Mm, we'll I don't wait. know if I can save it. He is scheduled to be released oh. in 2021. Okay, great. <laughs> so we all know what we need to do. Let Twitter know and they'll take care of it. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Colombian law, however, says that those who have committed crimes against children are not eligible to receive any benefits from justice. So the fact that they actually lightened his prison sentence, he's not allowed to even have that. But they did it anyway. And they're required to spend at least 60 years of their sentence in prison. In Garavito's case, this would mean that the national maximum 40-year imprisonment limit, and especially the reduction of 22 years for helping police find victims' bodies, both considered justice benefits, would not be applicable. Many Colombians criticized the possibility of Garavito's early release. In recent years, Colombians have increasingly felt that Garavito's sentence was not sufficient punishment for his crimes. Some have argued he deserves either life in prison or the death penalty, neither of which exist in Colombia. Which, I hate to be mean, but Colombia is one of those countries that has the highest murder rate. Maybe you should let them kill these people. Um, especially this guy. We should, like, we should, like, write a law and name it after this guy. (laughs) Like, you know, like, let's have life in prison and name it after this guy right. because of this guy, you know? Colombian law had no provision or method to impose a sentence longer than what Garavito received, which was seen as a deficiency in the law caused by the failure to address the possibility of a serial killer in Colombian society. The law has since increased the maximum penalty for such crimes to 60 years in prison. So now, at least it's not 40, we're up to 60. The TV host and journalist Guillermo Preto La Rota, popularly known as Piri, interviewed Garavito for a show which aired on June 11, 2006. Piri mentioned that during the interview, Garavito tried to minimize his actions and expressed intent to start a political career in order to help abuse children. Piri also described Garavito's conditions in prison and commented that due to good behavior, he could probably apply for early release within three years. And then at the bottom of each of these killers, I noted he killed between 138 and 300 plus. So what you're saying is if he gets out, we have to let people know and let people take care of it. Yeah, otherwise he's going to go into a political career and it seems like we're going to have the same problem going on with America and Colombia. You know, when you think about serial killers, it's one of those things where when you think about, especially the ones we know of, like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer as like things of the past Mm -hmm. and things like yes they existed kind of recently like the 70s and 80s but they're dead we killed them you don't think about the ones in other countries or the ones that are still out there or serving prison sentences or that are going to be released or the ones that killed children like we think of predators of women a lot Mm -hmm. you know or the ones that were never caught there are so many in my research yeah. that I found of unknown, unknown murderer, unknown murderer. And it was, you know, two kids killed, three kids killed, 
Some of these we don't even know. Like just patterns. Yeah. We know patterns, but we have no idea. They could be our neighbors, or speaking of work, they could be our patients, or, you know, like, I mean, I'm, all the people we see, mm -hmm. like, that's insane. Yeah. 300 plus people. They don't even know because he would just wander between countries. So it's not just Colombia. There are murders everywhere that he did. So that's the most killed. What you got? I'm going to keep some of my, the ones that struck me as more interesting for a little bit later. But this one that I'm going to talk about is Israel Keys. And the reason that I put him on the list is because he's a more recent dude. He was traveling around and doing things and wasn't arrested until March 2012. So, in the United States. So, we'll go into... I like the serial killer stuff that we talk about their upbringing and things like that because it's really interesting to mm -hmm. me where people come from and the discussion of nature versus nurture. And a lot of serial killers are psychopaths and we know talking from a psychological and psychiatric background, the psychopaths are different. Mm -hmm. Like their brains are different. We've looked at that on MRIs, like they're just different. However, uh, there is, you know, sometimes it's not always psychopathy, you know? Right. So what does it? So. Israel Keyes was born in Cove, Utah on January 7th, 1978. He's the second of 10 children born to a couple that didn't believe in government interference, public schools, or medicine. When he was a toddler, his family left Utah for Coveville, Washington, and they lived an isolated existence in the really woods. Really quick, really quick, really quick. Where they That's where my yeah. family's from. My really? State, my grandfather was stationed in Colville, and that's how he met my grandmother. Well, and maybe they lived next to this weird family. <laughs> Yeah. They lived an isolated existence in the woods where they grew up with no heat, no electricity, and no running water. Great. So, Great. yeah. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> While in Washington, his formerly Mormon parents became fundamentalist Christians and joined a white supremacist church. Oh, of course they did. Yeah. Yep. In the late 1990s, the family relocated to Malpin, Oregon. They next moved across the country, settling close to an Amish community in Maine. Growing up, he broke into neighbors' homes to steal guns, loved hunting, would pursue anything with a heartbeat, torture animals, which has obviously been linked to many serial killers' behaviors and psychopathy. While he was in police custody later, he said, I've known since I was 14 that there were things that I thought were normal that were okay that nobody else seemed to think that were normal and okay. So, when he was a teenager, he told his family that he no longer shared their faith, his father cut ties with him, and he remained close to his mother. When he was old enough, he went to the military and he joined the U.S. Army. He did well as a soldier, spending time in Egypt and in Fort Hood and in Fort Lewis in Washington. When he was honorably discharged in 2001, he lived on a reservation with his mother, with the mother of his daughter. The only issues he ever had was he received a DUI while in the Army, but otherwise he had no issues with the law. When he became a serial killer, this is what his methods were. As a serial killer... He targeted victims who happened to cross his path rather than sticking to a specific profile. So this guy was more erratic than methodical. He would wait to attack people in places like parks, cemeteries, or campgrounds. 
he said, not as much to choose from in a manner of speaking. But there's also no witnesses, really. There's no one else around. He also would travel to kill. In 2011, the year I graduated from high school, so this was, you know, only nine years ago, he flew to Chicago before driving to Vermont, where he murdered Villa Moraine Courier. He had a history of trips that covered a lot of ground in the U.S., meaning he had many opportunities to seek out victims. Foreign journeys, such as visits to Canada, Mexico, and Belize, may have played another part in his killing spree, and also a reason why it was difficult to catch him. While on the road, he would pay in cash and take the battery out of his cell phone to lessen the chance of being tracked. His serial killer incorporated detailed planning. He crisscrossed the country to hide murder equipment that consisted of guns, ammunition, and chemicals for the destruction of bodies. When he wanted to kill, he would dig up a cache. And cache, I know it's kind of hard, C-A-C-H-E. Ah, okay. He studied, yeah, he studied the work of FBI profilers and learned about serial killers like Ted Bundy. In Maureen Callahan's 2019 book about Keys, it's called American Predator, she noted that he'd been fitted with a gastric band and had visited a plastic surgery clinic in Mexico. She speculated that he might have been trying to become a better killer. A lap band could mean he wouldn't get hungry as often and he might have changed his fingerprints or removed body hair to lessen the chances of leaving evidence behind. That's nuts. According to Keyes, his first planned attack took place in Oregon in 1997 or 98. He couldn't remember which. He abducted a teenage girl, then raped her. His intent was to murder her, but she convinced him to let her live. I wasn't violent enough at the time, he told investigators. I made up my mind I was never going to let that happen again. He spoke of killing less than a dozen. While in jail, he used his own blood to draw 12 skulls, which may represent 11 victims and Keyes himself. In 2020, an FBI agent told 48 Hours, We believe that 11 is the total number of victims, yet only three of Key's victims have definitely been identified. One known victim is Koenig, an Anchorage barista who was abducted by Keys on February 1st, 2012. Keys raped and killed her within hours, then weeks later dismembered her body and dropped the pieces into a lake north of Anchorage. Her remains were recovered in April 2012. He's also confessed to murdering the Couriers in Essex, Vermont in June 2011. The couple was selected at random as they fit Key's criteria of having no children, no dog, and a house with an attached garage. He broke into their home, subdued them, and then transported the pair to an abandoned farmhouse. Keys killed Bill, then raped Lorraine before murdering her. Keys claimed he took at least five other lives, but never named these victims. Per his account, he killed four people in Washington State, a couple sometime between 2001 and 2005, and two separate victims in 2005 and 2006. Keyes also stated that in 2009, he murdered someone on the East Coast, then left the body in New York State. The FBI is relatively confident that this victim was Deborah Feldman, a New Jersey resident who went missing in April 2009. Speculation about other possible Keyes victims has included a girl named Julie Harris who disappeared in Colville in 1996. Her prosthetic feet were found a month after she vanished and her remains came to light in 1997. Keyes was in the area when Harris went missing but denied any other involvement. He's also been positioned as responsible for other unsolved crimes such as the murders of 56-year-old Mary Cooper and her 27-year-old daughter who were shot while hiking in Washington in 2006. Keyes also said he'd Next, intended to leave Alaska and travel through storm-ravaged regions to find his next victims working as a contractor. 
He also dreamt of building a house where he could imprison his victims to keep them there and then kill them at will. Murder castle. Luckily, he never got that far. He committed suicide in his Anchorage jail cell on the night of December 1st, 2012. Despite warnings not to provide keys with a razor blade, he had been given one. He slit his wrists and also strangled himself with a sheet while lying in bed. His body was not discovered until the morning of December 2nd. Only his mother, four sisters, three brothers-in-laws were the sole well, attended his funeral on December 8th. Damn. Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty, you know, the things that are, were interesting about this one is he was recent, mm-hmm. 90s to 2000s. He killed couples, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess more opportune, you know, more higher body count, but usually they have more of a type. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, usually, you know, like Ted Bundy, brunette, women. You know, maybe the couple is the type, but at the same time, he killed a mother and daughter and then a man and a woman, you know, and was the fact that they didn't have a dog and children a code of ethics or was it just the fact that there were less people there? So it didn't matter, you know, I don't know. He just struck me as interesting. And also, you know, again, the fact that it was recent and I mean, he kept it hard to track, but also who was keeping tabs on him? Because I didn't bring this up, but he also still had a personal life. Like a he was involved with people. a job and yeah, he still had some of that stuff. Hmm. So like, yeah. So yeah, there you go. That weird dude. I just, like, <laughs> the thing that sticks out to me is that his mother and siblings attended his funeral. I feel like there are lines for me. And maybe being a serial killer, I probably wouldn't go visit you. <sighs> Sorry. Yeah, and the fact that he like he had really admired Ted Bundy, like, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of differences, you know. Mm-hmm. He didn't really have a particular type, and Ted Bundy did. And, yeah. I don't know, and in just... Washington, that's interesting. Because Ted Bundy yeah. did so much in Washington, yeah. huh? Interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Moving on to someone who has always fascinated me. It's not something... This is, I guess, elderly. We don't see elderly serial killers. Like, once you get into your 60s, 70s, 80s, why are you going to want to do that? This man, I'm pretty sure, if I remember right, he was in his 60s when he started, really. Oh, my God. I also have an elderly serial <laughs> killer. Cool. All right. Albert Fish. Albert Fish, or the Gray Man, is what his term was, was born in 1970. When Fish was five, his father died and his mother couldn't support the family, so he was sent to St. John's Orphanage, where the teachers punished the boys living there by stripping them naked and whipping them in front of each other. Because of this treatment, Fish developed tastes for sadomasochism and would get erections and even derive pleasure from the beatings. He became a bedwetter and frequently escaped only to end up back at the orphanage again every time. In 1880, Mrs. Fish got a government job and took back Albert, age 9. In 1882, a 12-year-old Fish began a relationship with a telegraph boy who introduced him to coprophagia, which is the consumption of feces, and urolagnia, drinking urine. So he would eat poop and drink pee. <laughs> this is why he's, he's interesting to me, because he, 
He also, like your guy, doesn't fit one mold. He fits all of them. Okay. He began spending his weekends at local public baths, where he would watch boys younger than himself undress. He also became a prolific writer of obscene letters to women, finding targets in classified ads. By 1890, the Fish family had moved to New York City, where Albert claimed to have become a male prostitute. He also claimed to have started raping young boys at this age and to have kept doing so even after he, after an arrangement made by his mother, married a woman five years younger than him in 1898. They had six children together. So he was still a prostitute raping little boys when he was married and had six kids. Working as a house painter, Fish later claimed to have continued molesting children, mostly boys under the age of six, during this time, and to have committed his first murder in Delaware in 1910, fatally stabbing a child named Thomas Beaton. In 1903, he went to prison for the first time, being sentenced to time in Sing Sing for grand larceny. He had extramarital relationships with men, among them a mentally retarded man whom he tried to castrate. In 1917, his wife ran off with John Strobe, a handyman who had done work at the family home, and his behavior became increasingly irregular. He began hearing voices and suffering from religious delusions. When at the family summer house in Westchester, he would climb to the top of a mountain, shake his fist at the sky, and declare himself Christ before asking his children to hit his buttocks. His growing up, obs- yeah, <laughs> yeah. His growing obsession with pain manifested itself as self-harm, most infamously pushing needles into his groin eventually pushing them so deep inside that they couldn't be retrieved. (laughs) After Fish's eldest son, unable to put up with his father's bizarre behavior any longer, threw him out, he became a drifter and was arrested several times for minor offenses such as vagrancy and petty theft, and also for sending his usually obscene letters. On February 26, 1924, he married an Estella Wilcox, though the marriage only lasted a week and wasn't legal since he and his first wife hadn't filed for divorce. On July 11, 1924, Fish attempted to abduct Beatrice Keel, 8, from her parents' farm on Staten Island. He approached her and asked for her help in picking rhubarbs, only to be chased away by Mrs. Keel. I love her. She's like, no, you get the fuck away. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not funny. Like, this stuff isn't funny, obviously, because he's a serial killer, but, like, good lord. Like, how... You know that the human mind can be, de- like, as dark and depraved as dark and depraved can get, but, like, how much can one person have? You know what I mean? More. They can have more, I promise. Okay. It, it keep keeps going. going. On July 15th the same year, he committed his first confirmed murder, abducting and killing Francis X. McDonald on Long Island. On October 5th, 1926, some sources state that he killed a five-year-old girl named Emma Richardson. On February 11, 1927, he abducted Billy Gaffney, who was four, while he was playing hide-and-seek with his three-year-old friend Billy Beaton and Beaton's 12-year-old brother. When Billy Beaton was asked by the police what happened to Gaffney, he said the boogeyman took him. Fish took Gaffney to a house at the Riker Avenue dumps and held him captive there until the next day, when he returned at 2 p.m. and tortured him to death, dismembered the head, arms, and legs below the knees, put the parts in weighted sacks and threw them in nearby ponds. He then cannibalized the thighs and torso over the next four days. On May 28, 1928, Fish answered a classified ad made by Edward Budd, who was 18, asking for work and mentioning his address. He visited the family's home under the pretense of considering hiring Edward and calling himself Frank Howard, a prosperous farmer from Farmingdale, New York. 
Fish later claimed that his original plan was to kill Edward, but felt that he was too fit to be subdued and changed his mind when he met Edward's 10-year-old sister, Gracie. He said he would hire Bud and left the house, saying he would send for him within the next few days. When he failed to do so, he apologized in a telegram and set a later date. When he returned on June 3rd, bringing a gift of pot cheese and strawberries, which he claimed came from his farm, he said he would hire Edward, but had to pick him up later that day as he had to attend his sister's birthday party in an apartment house on 137th Street in Columbus, a fake address. He managed to convince Mr. and Mrs. Bud to let him bring Grace along and left with her. That was the last moment she was ever seen alive. Fish brought her to a pre-selected house in Rochester and went inside while she was outside picking flowers. He undressed so he wouldn't get blood on his clothes, called her upstairs, stripped her as well, and choked her to death, cannibalizing her remains over the next nine days. The investigation of her disappearance, led by Detective William King, went on fruitlessly for five years. At this point, Fish made the fatal mistake of writing one of his usual obscene letters to Mrs. Budd, bragging about killing her daughter and describing the murder in detail. You know, I'm not saying serial killers should get away with it. They absolutely should not. But why do they always end up fucking writing letters? Because they think they're smarter than everybody else. Exactly. A big issue raised before the 10-day-long trial for his kidnapping and murder of Grace Budd was whether or not he was insane. It was noted that Fish was something of a psychiatric marvel, as no single person had ever displayed so many sexual abnormalities and paraphilias. Though psychiatrists and Fish's defense all agreed that he was mad, the jury, after an hour of delegation, found him sane and guilty, and he was sentenced to death by electric chair. Though he was unhappy with the sentence, oh, I'm so sorry, so sorry you're unhappy. He was, he was thrilled with the notion of being electrocuted to death and even thanked the judge for it. On January 16, 1936, the sentence was carried out at Sing Sing, where Fish had previously been incarcerated. His last words before the switch was pulled were reported. I don't even know why I'm here. It took two attempts to kill him. Legend has it that the first attempt failed because the device was short-circuited by the many needles that Fish had inserted in his groin over the years. He was, I know, he was pronounced dead at 11.06 p.m. and buried at the prison cemetery. He was 65 at the time of his death. And this, this is what Fish said about himself and his M.O. at the end right here. I took tools, a good heavy cat nine tails, homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit these half in six strips about an eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind until the blood ran from between his legs. Fish targeted children of both sexes aged between 4 and 10. He would abduct them using a ruse and take them someplace secluded, where he would mercilessly torture and mutilate them with a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw, which he referred to as his implements of hell. While MacDonald and Bud both died of strangulation, Gaffney, based on Fish's graphic description of the murder, apparently died of the torture itself. Both of his male victims were also raped before being killed. Post-mortem, he would dismember and mutilate the bodies and cannibalize the remains until there was nothing edible left on the bones. He also wrote that he drank Gaffney's blood while torturing him, and he killed between 3 to 12 plus people. Yeah, there's a special place in hell. Yeah, that dude is mm-hmm. interesting to me only because they're so... he's so crazy. Yeah, I mean, like... The electric chair probably didn't work because the electric chair was like, I don't want to touch it. <laughs> like, get it off. <laughs> God. Like, there, there's, okay, people that murder people, like, obviously, yes, they deserve to die. But people that 
torture children. Four years old. What did a four-year-old ever do to anybody? Nothing. Except for, like, get on my nerves. But you don't deserve to, Mm -hmm. like, be, like, chastised for that. You're just a child, you know? Like, you don't even deserve to be, like, punished for being annoying. You're just, like, a child, you know? Like, do you, you know? Like, like, I've heard of Albert Fish. I just... I don't really do like the children's like I've I've heard of them obviously, but when I hear like kids serial killers, I'm like, you stay over there. <laughs> I'm gonna read more about this one because you, again, are a special place in hell. Like, yeah. you know, like. Ugh, well, it's like just... serial killers tend to choose, sadly, tend to choose either women or kids that they will then proceed to usually rape. And then murder. Overpower. Right, because they're easier to right. overpower and dominate, unfortunately. Exactly. Yell a bunch of weak ass hoes. <laughs> yeah. Watch me like get abducted. But like, you know, like Yeah. What's interesting to me though is that he even said he was gonna kill that eighteen year old kid, so then he doesn't even fall into any of these pieces. He didn't want anything to do with girls he didn't rape grace or anything he just wanted to kill somebody and she was just easier to grab eh, this one's fine yeah i need to get my killing rocks off exactly what goes wrong in like you know manufacturing a human Mm -hmm. like at the factory (laughs) at the when god's like fuck (laughs) That's the thing. God damn it. Like, shit. Or he's like, yeah, well, I gotta do a few of them because, you know, not everybody. They gotta have the free will thing and, you know, I don't know. But this one's wrong. It's got a little defect. <laughs> a little factory defect. Little factory defect, you know. That one's gonna do the killing. Gross. <laughs> yeah. So this one I pulled from the 19... 19- 50s because I just didn't didn't hear a lot about killers in the 50s like serial killers so okay you know I picked that that era didn't kill a ton of people but at the same time it says victims five to nine plus so do we really know we do not and that's the thing with serial killers they're like yes I killed these people but you don't know exactly you don't know they constantly so. say the numbers are higher or lower we'll never know well, that's, it's just like a power play, you exactly. know? So this serial killer's name is Melvin Reese. And he looks kind of like my grandfather. I'm not going right. to lie. He's a handsome dude, but they usually are. And that's the problem. Yeah. Because that's how people are like, I trust you. Because you're handsome. You know? That's ridiculous. That's the stupidest reason yeah. to trust someone. Handsome white dude. That's how you don't trust exactly. people. They're handsome white dude. <laughs> I'm like, you're suspect. Exactly. You're sus. Oh, I loved you. Little is known about his early childhood and upbringing, but during the early 1950s, he attended the University of Maryland in College Park, just outside Washington, D.C. His classmates would later recall that he was a talented musician, showing skill with the saxophone, piano, and the clarinet. He dropped out of UMD before he could graduate to pursue a musical career. He traveled around D.C. playing at local jazz clubs. So not only was he, you know, attractive, but he was like, 
I played jazz, the piano, like, you know. Okay. Got all the things, you know. In 1955, he was arrested on charges of assaulting an unidentified 36-year-old woman. Of course, it's He had tried to force Yep. He had tried to force her into his car, but she escaped. The victim, however, did not press charges, and the case was dropped. His friends dismissed this incident until after his killing spree began. On June 26, 1957, Margaret Harold and her boyfriend, a U.S. Army sergeant on weekend leave, were traveling near Annapolis, Maryland, when Reese, driving his green Chrysler, forced them off the road. After exiting the vehicle, Reese gestured at the couple to roll down their window, displaying a 38 caliber revolver. After being refused, demands for cigarettes and money, an angered Reese shot Harold point-blank in the face. The soldier fled the scene and ran across several fields before reaching a farmhouse where he called the police. As the soldier was being picked up at the farmhouse, other officers arrived at the crime scene where they found that Reese had removed the deceased Harold's clothing again, a faceless woman, and sexually assaulted her. Jesus. Upon searching... Yeah. Upon... Yeah. He shot her point blank, and then sexually assaulted her. So... Ew. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Upon searching the area for the then-unidentified Reese, authorities came across an abandoned center block construction building, noticing a basement window that had been broken into. Inside, investigators discovered a collection of violent pornographic images and autopsy photos of female corpses taped all over the walls. Ew. They also discovered a yearbook photo of Wanda Tipton, a 1945 graduate of the University of Maryland. Police managed to contact and question her, who denied knowing a tall, dark-haired man described by the soldier as Harold's killer. Since there were few new leads, and since forensic science was primitive in 57, Harold's murder became a cold case until Reese killed again two years later. On January 11, 1959, the Jackson family, Carol Jackson and his wife Mildred, and their infant daughters, Janet and Susan, disappeared after visiting relatives in the Apple Grove area. The Jacksons were, by all accounts, a normal family who had no known enemies making their disappearance especially baffling. A female relative of the Jacksons, who was also driving home from the same Apple Grove reunion, came across Carol Jackson's abandoned car on the side of the road. The relative called the police, who inspected the car and found no indication of any struggle. A massive search effort was called to locate the missing family, but it was unsuccessful. Almost two months later, on March 4th, two men gathering brush near Friedrichsburg discovered the decomposing body of Carol Jackson in a ditch. He had been shot in the back of the head. His hands were also tied behind his back. Upon recovering the body, police discovered that Carol had been dumped over that of 18-month-old Janet Jackson. Yeah. It was later determined that the child had been dumped alive in the ditch before her father and had suffocated under the weight of his dead Jesus. body. Jesus. Yeah. On March 21st, the bodies of Mildred and Susan Jackson were discovered in a forest near Annapolis, showing signs of torture and pre-mortem sexual assaults. Soon after the Jacksons' disappearance, a local couple came forward to report that they had heard a frightening experience with a tall, dark-haired man that same afternoon. 
The man had driven behind and around in a blue, older model Chevrolet, flashing his headlights and forcing them off the road. The man later got out of his car and menacingly approached the couple. Sensing danger, they reversed and managed to flee the scene. After Mildred and Susan Jackson's bodies were found, detectives discovered an abandoned building near the dump site. Reportedly the same cinder block structure that had been searched after Margaret Harold's killing. Inside, they found a red button missing from Mildred's dress, indicating that she had been taken there after being kidnapped. Near the building, there were fresh tire marks. After finding points of comparison between the Harold and Jackson cases, mainly the general area of the murders and the sadistic nature of the crimes, investigators determined that both homicides were committed by the same culprit. The murder investigation became a media sensation with the involvement of self-proclaimed psychic Peter Herkos who visited the gravesite of the Jacksons in Falls Church, Virginia, and handled their possessions allegedly using his powers to accurately describe the murders and the positions in which their bodies were found. Herkos visited the site of the Margaret Harold murder and told investigators that the same killer had murdered the Jacksons. He also made various predictions about the outcome of the case, saying that it would be solved within two weeks and that the killer would ultimately be indicted for nine murders. He also reportedly led investigators to the house of one of the main suspects, a trash collector who confessed to the murders. With the later apprehension of Reese, however, Herkos and his claims about the case were ridiculed. <laughs> An anonymous source, later identified as Glenn Moser of Norfolk Valley, sent a letter to Friedrichsburg authorities suggesting that they look into Reese. Moser explained that he and Reese often engaged in heady philosophical conversations one of which had been about whether murder could be considered acceptable. Reese, under the influence of Benzedrine, confided in Mosier that he'd considered murder to just be another part of the human experience, that he eagerly wanted to partake in it. You can't say it's wrong to kill, he told Mosier. Only individual standards make it right or wrong. The discussion took place the day before the Jacksons' disappearance. Upon hearing of their murders months later, Mosier suspected Reese of killing the family. Mosier confronted Reese about the murders. While Reese did not confess to the killings, he also didn't deny responsibility and became defensive and evasive. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Why are these people so stupid? Like, like the letter exactly. thing. You know, like, you're supposed to be smarter than everybody else, aren't you? You're supposed to have this higher sense of understanding or this like i transcend like people you know or in his anonymous letter moser also voiced his suspicion of reese and margaret harold's murder in 1957 as the two men were working in the annapolis area as salesmen at the time authorities decided to follow the lead and question reese only to find that he had moved out of his house and left no forwarding address they also searched for reese at the jazz clubs where he was known to perform, but were unable to locate him. Upon running a background check, police discovered that he had attended the University of Maryland and dated Wanda Tempted, their person of interest in the Margaret Harold investigation. Upon further questioning, Tipton admitted to having a relationship with Reese, but broke it off after Reese claimed to be married. The writer of the anonymous letter personally came forward in 1960 to tell authorities that Reese had contacted him and was currently employed at the music store in West Memphis, Arkansas. Reese was arrested after searching his home. Police found notes describing the Jackson family's murders. The man who witnessed Margaret Harold's killing confirmed that Reese was indeed the man he saw pull, put a bullet into her head. 
Reese was convicted by the state of Maryland of Harold's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Virginia added a death sentence for the other four murders, though it was eventually changed to life in 1972, and he died in prison in 1995. Investigators also suspect he was responsible for four homicides in the area around the University of Maryland. Teenagers Mary Shomit, Michael Ann Ryan, Mary Fellers, and Shelby Venable were all found raped and killed in separate incidences, but he was never charged in any of those four murders. Gross. I don't understand. Why is it so wrong to fucking kill someone that raped and murdered all these people? Like, why does it always have to I be, don't know. we're going to give him the death penalty and then, oh, we're going to change it to life? I, you know, I understand people that are against the death penalty and the fact that the cops plant evidence and the cops are bad. Totally understand. However, I think when you know somebody done fucked up and you know for a fact with out the shadow of a doubt that somebody killed somebody kill him yeah fucking kill him kill him like if like I, i'll tell this story i don't know if i've told this story but i will tell the story another time this is not the episode to do it i know for a fact that my there is a killer in my family my uncle murdered my aunt that is a fact we know that he eventually admitted to it the cops found out he got told on by someone else fucking kill him he killed my aunt Mm -hmm. burn him shit nobody you know what i mean like granted i'm not with children my cousins are and that's not really my place you know but also you took a life bro exactly you took a life and especially those that kill children Bye. Yeah, I don't understand why we as the public have to pay for them the rest of their lives. I would rather have paid for the kids or the girls or the men that you fucking killed. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's unfortunately, and I'm not trying to step in shit, but I don't really care at this point, especially, you know, with Black Lives Matter and, you know, ACAB and stuff. Like, unfortunately, the cops have made it to where you can't trust their work. And that's why the death penalty is a problem. Right. Moving on. (laughs) All right. So the next two I have, they're incredibly short. One, the most information I have is just a small paragraph, sadly. But I wanted to put them on because one of them is an elderly female, which you never hear about female serial killers, ever. That's just, that's crazy. It just almost never happens. And the other one that I have. Oh, I wonder if you have the same one. uh, Tamara Samosova. Um. Nope, I have a different one. Great. And the other one I have, which is a small little paragraph because there's really no information on him, is a black man. And that's interesting to me as well because you never hear that. It's usually white males that are serial killers. All right. So starting off with Tamara Samosova, she is known as the Granny Ripper or part of why I wanted to do her was she's also known, labeled as Baba Yaga, which... We did an episode, our Haunted Happy Hour for the holidays, we talked about the Baba Yaga. Tamara was born in 1947 and started killing at 53 when she killed her husband. After her husband's disappearance, Samosova began renting out a room in her apartment. According to investigators, on September 6, 2003, during a quarrel, she killed her tenant. He was a 44-year-old resident from Norlisk. She then dismembered his corpse and disposed of it on the street. She moved into a friend's apartment in 2015 while her home was being renovated, and after a while, decided she didn't want to leave the apartment, so she poisoned her friend. After the poisoning, 
She found her friend's body lying on the kitchen floor and proceeded to dismember it with knives and a saw. Firstly sawing off the victim's head, she then sawed the body in half, and then using the knives, she sheared it into pieces. To take out all the bags outside of the apartment, she had to go outside and return several times. Samosova left other parts of the body scattered around the house. The decapitated head was found wrapped in a shower curtain and left outside. She is currently being investigated in connection with 14 murders, and they think that she might be schizophrenic. 14 murders? Yeah. <laughs> 14 murders? She left the head on the curb! She'd be killing just because she's like, I don't really, this is inconveniencing me. <laughs> she didn't want to move back into her apartment, Amanda. God. I, okay, first, if that was just a solution. Okay, I'm I'm not trying to be like high and mighty. I'm just saying like, I have two very different sides of me. One side, I am a vegan and every life is sacred. Two, I would also like to kill things because I'm inconvenienced. <laughs> Out of my way. Poison you. Yeah. God, like... Like, I don't admire that at all. I don't admire killing in any facet. But it's just funny that she's like, this is... I'm just gonna kill it. I don't... And then kill this person. Like, I don't even give a fuck. It's not a single... Not a single fuck was given this day. Yeah. Jesus. And the second one I have, he is not only a black serial killer, which never happens, but he is also the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. And his name is Samuel Little. He was born in 1940 to a prostitute mother, which he says. That's actually, we don't even know if that's true or not. From 1970 to 1997, he killed women by strangulation. And he was caught and released numerous times. The, the police caught him so many times with women in the backseat of his car. And they just would release him or he'd get out somehow. Until he was taken in in 2012 and currently resides in the California State Prison. He killed between 50 and 93 plus people. Whoa. Yep. Damn, bro. Jeez. Yep. I can't imagine, like, that is a huge body. I don't even think I know that many people. Yeah, I was curious if he was, like, a truck driver or something, and it doesn't really talk about what his career even was. Like, he jumped from job to job to job, so, yeah, I don't know. Even still, like, just coming in contact with that many people, but intimately enough to murder them? I was also curious, because usually, if it's a man killing a woman, it's usually rape is usually put on the table. No, none of them were raped. They were just strangled. Well, that's not his thing. He just wants yeah. to kill them. Wants to see the life leave their bodies. A lot of them are prostitutes, but not all of them. They were that I could tell. I didn't look. I wasn't going to look up ninety-three of them, but that I could tell they were all black females. So I think that's the only mo I really have on him. Wow, yeah. interesting. So, I have two more, and they're both women. I'm going to let you pick, though, which will the order in which I do these last two. Would you like to hear about the Mexican old lady killer or the death house landlady? Uh, let's... We've spent a lot of time in America. Let's go to Mexico. All right. Juana Barraza was a Mexican professional wrestler, oh, dubbed the old lady killer. Yeah, this one's really interesting. It's, it's a little kind of shorter, but it's really interesting. 
Wama began her killing in 1998, motivated by her fucked up past with her mother. Wama's mother was an alcoholic prostitute that allegedly sold her to a man for three beers when she was a mere adolescent, like 12 years old. The man abused her physically and basically used her as a sex slave. Oh, great. So, yeah. So, her targets became women that reminded her of the rage she had towards her mother. So, this is definitely one of those, like, nurture kind of situations. She probably wouldn't have been a serial killer, in my opinion, had she not had a super fucked up past. But that's I mean, that's a lot of serial killers. Yeah. Because of her professional wrestler training... Juana had strength enough to fool authorities into thinking the killings were done by a man dressing as a woman, so it was easy for her to maneuver these and get away with it. Juana preyed on women that lived alone. She used a simple tactic. She would pose as someone there to help them out with something. Cooking, cleaning, she was a social worker, you know, any of those things. And once inside their homes, she would kill them. Her M.O. was strangulation. She would steal trophies and sometimes even sexual assault. Interesting. The killings... Yeah. I You know, what was done to her? Yeah. The killings went on until 2006 when Mexico City police finally admitted they were dealing with the serial killer. Because for a while, they wouldn't acknowledge that. They were just like, oh, well... Robbery has gone wrong. Elderly women can't do anything to defend themselves. So, you know. But because they thought they were looking for a man, she could keep killing with no interruption until she was caught literally running from a crime scene. So she was basically caught red-handed. She strangled an elderly woman with a stethoscope and had the stethoscope on her person when she was caught. So she went in there basically as like a caregiver. Um, like a CNA. When the police ran her prints, they pinged at almost every single crime scene. And she admitted pretty quickly, like almost immediately upon questioning, to several murders, but denied others. She was convicted. Okay, this was, I got different, I got conflicting information from different sources. So she was convicted of either 11 or 16 murders. I know that that should be factual. But I found different sources. So, murders total and sentenced to 759 years in jail. But it is possible that she killed between 25 and 48 people that they have been unable to pin to her. Damn. Yeah. I mean, you know, she was a professional wrestler, so she was stocky, so she could do whatever she wanted. They were looking for a man the whole time, and she would just be able to get into these houses around Mexico being like, hi, I'm your caregiver today, or I'm here to take your vitals, or I'm here to check your blood pressure, or I'm with whatever their version of, like, you know, she was saying I'm going to come help you apply for whatever the government assistance is for the elderly, or whatever the case was. I'm here to get you your groceries, and then she just come in and fucking strangle them. Damn. Yeah. The old lady killer from Mexico. Alright. So we had an old lady. Now let's go to the opposite end. And this is one of not the youngest serial killer. Because the youngest serial killers, there's not enough information. But this kid was 14. Oof. And he started when he was about 9. 
That is so young to be that... I'm not gonna say, like, fucked up, but, like, that, like, deal with mortality that early. Jesse Pomeroy was the youngest person convicted of first-degree murder in the history of Massachusetts, being 14 years old. Pomeroy was born in Boston in 1859, the second son of Thomas Pomeroy, an alcoholic dockyard worker, and his wife Ruth. Pomeroy was intelligent, but had trouble socializing with other children because of the large size he had had for his age, periodic epileptic seizures, and the fact that he was born with a whitish membrane over his right eye, similar to a cataract. He disliked sports and spent most of his free time reading violent tales of the Indian Wars. When he played with other children, it was often as an Indian in Scouts and Indians games, where he would reenact torture methods he had read about. Pomeroy was also subjected to horrific physical abuse by his father from a young age. The common punishment was to be taken to the outhouse, stripped naked, and struck with a belt until blood was drawn. Before his 10th birthday, Pomeroy killed his mother's songbirds by tearing their heads off and was later caught torturing a neighbor's cat with a knife. Before he was 10. Okay. Oh my god, the cat thing, the animal thing, like, what would you even do? Like, I know we've talked about this in private, but like, your kid, your child, the thing that you, not thing, but like, a human that you have like, birthed and brought into this world, or, you know, love more than anything, and like, killing animals. Nowadays, I would put them in juvie so fucking fast, their heads would spin. Back then, 1859... I don't know, send them away, throw them out, or, like, I would probably murder the kid. If you murdered my animal, I'd probably kill you, and then I'd go to prison. But I'd try to find a way around me having to go to prison for it. Yeah. Pomeroy's first human victim was four-year-old William Payne, who was found in an isolated outhouse of Powderhorn Hill on Boxing Day, 1871. He was hanging from the ceiling by a rope tied to his wrist, semi-undressed, and suffering from hypothermia. He had been hit repeatedly with an unconfirmed blunt object. In the following months, three more young boys announced that they had been lured to the same place by an older boy with brown hair, who fondled himself while he tortured them. The news caused outrage in Boston and prompted police to post a $500 reward for any clue leading to the arrest of the criminal. However, it was misreported that the perpetrator behind the string of tortures was a young adult with red hair and a pointy beard. That's fucking great. On July 20th, 1872, only two days before Pomeroy tortured his last victim on Powderhorn Hill, he received his most severe beating yet from his father. Ruth had had enough and chased Thomas out of the family home with a knife. Which, go her. Yeah, I mean, that's, what a... I mean, I know it's not that hard of a situation because, like, your kid's, like, you know, but, yeah. I mean, it's still a bad situation. Well, yeah, 1859, a, you know. I'm sure she doesn't. She can't hold the household very well by herself. She kind of needs a man, but at yeah. the same time, you yeah. hurt my babies, I'm also going after you with a knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a few days later, she and her children moved to South Boston. Southie! Where Pomeroy's attacks became closer in frequency and more violent. Pomeroy scratched George Pratt with his nails, stabbed him with a needle, and bit chunks out of his cheek and buttocks, repeatedly stabbed Harry Austin with a pocket knife, and attempted to cut off his penis, slashed Joseph Kennedy's face and forced his head into salt water, slashed Robert Gould's scalp, also trying to slash his throat and kill him when he was startled by people approaching and fled. After Gould described his attacker as a big boy with a milky eye, the police enlisted Joseph Kennedy to accompany them in a tour of Boston schools as a way to identify the attacker. 
Though Pomeroy evaded them when they visited his school, he entered the police station as the officers were returning and then left immediately, with no reason behind his actions. Kennedy recognized him as he left, and Pomeroy was arrested in the street nearby. After spending the night in a cell and being threatened with a 100-year prison life term, if he didn't cooperate, Pomeroy admitted his guilt in all of the attacks and was sentenced to live in the Westboro Boys Reform School until he turned 18 years old. However, he demonstrated good behavior at the institution. That's how it always turns out, right? Good behavior. Through the efforts of his mother, who was convinced that Pomeroy was framed, he was granted an early release a year and a half into his sentencing. Six weeks later, on March 18, 1874, Pomeroy was tending to Ruth's shop when 10-year-old Katie Curran walked in and asked if they carried notebooks. Pomeroy told Curran to come downstairs to see if they had any left. Once in the cellar, he slashed her throat and stabbed her genitals repeatedly to see how she would react. He then hid the body under a pile of ashes behind a water closet, washed himself, and returned to work. On the following month, he tried to lure young boys again. He could not convince any, or they would be whisked away by people who knew of his reputation. After the stabbed and mutilated body of four-year-old Horace Millen was found in a marsh outside the city, Pomeroy was arrested. He confessed while being held by the police, but recanted after being assigned a lawyer. Amidst backlash, Ruth was forced to sell the shop, which led to the discovery of Kieran's body. Pomeroy admitted his responsibility of Kieran's death only after he was told by investigators that Ruth and his older brother were being arrested as presumed accomplices. Though Pomeroy stood trial for Millen's murder and not Kieran's, this newest development convinced his lawyer to drop the innocent plea and aim to get him acquitted for a reason of insanity. The juries were not convinced of the reasoning. In February 1875, Pomeroy was found guilty of Millen's murder and sentenced to die by hanging, the only penalty for this charge at the time. However, the execution was delayed for a year and eventually commuted to life in solitary confinement after two governors refused to sign the death warrant. Like, that one I kind, I kind of understand. He's only 14. I get you not wanting to be the governor that signed his death warrant. But yeah. still. But if you let him go, he's just going to become an adult killer. Exactly. You're just delaying the inevitable exactly. more body count. So, I mean, it's kind of in the guise of, you know, public protection and public good and i know that sucks that's like a really difficult position to be in because it is a child but it's just an early discovery of a psychopath yeah. you know for the next 41 years pomeroy's sole interactions were with the guards and ruth who visited him once a month until she died in 1917 pomeroy was allowed to join the rest of the prison population in 1929 he was moved to a prison farm due to his deteriorating health he died from natural causes there in 1932 he was 72 years old at the time of his death. Excluding Kieran, whose murder was a crime of opportunity, Pomeroy targeted lone boys aged between four to eight years old. He would lure them to isolated areas using different ruses, such as going to see some spectacle together or hiring them to help him with an errand. Once they were alone, Pomeroy would tie them, strip them naked, and torture them by hitting them with a belt, stick, or his own fist while he masturbated. He escalated to slashing and stabbing with his fifth victim and was ready to kill by the eighth but he was prevented from doing so by passers-by. After his institutionalization, he changed his MO to killing his victims by cutting their throats before stabbing their genitals repeatedly. Though he threatened some of his victims with castration, he only carried it out with his last victim, Horace Miller, and he killed between two to 10 plus. Yeah, see, if you're doing that shit when you're a child, think about, this is gonna sound weird, but the natural progression of sexualization and puberty in quote, normal, end quote, people 
and how we just become more sexual beings when we grow up. Right. So imagine the natural progression of that, <laughs> you know, like, nope. Yeah. It would have just gotten worse. Like, I highly doubt it would have just, he would have just grown out of it. The need would have gotten greater in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, it already being that, he already killed between two to ten people at that age. It would have been, yeah, high body counts. And the, Yeah, and the shit that he needed to satiate that, uh, the shit that he was already mm -hmm. doing, like, it would get worse. Somehow. Mm -hmm. Get worse. Dorothea Helen Puente, or the Death House Landlady. So this is kind of an elderly killer, but she has a story. Okay. So, you know, she's got a life. She, she's got a life here. Dorothea was a serial killer in the 80s that preyed on the very people she claimed to take care of, the elderly and mentally disabled in her boarding home. Right. Dorothea had a traumatic childhood with an alcoholic prostitute mother and a father that attempted suicide right in front of her. So is prostitute mother. Although, that, I know, I know, my last two, <laughs> both of them. But you know, we we support sex work, but I don't know. I mean, you could. There's a way to do that, and I guess not traumatize yeah, like your child. So I don't know. Home and let them do stuff to your kids. Or sell your daughter for three beers or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Although her father's suicide attempt failed, he died of tuberculosis when she was eight, and her mother died of a car accident when she was nine. Jesus. Yeah. She was then sent to an orphanage where she was sexually abused. Now, before she even opened this boarding house, let me take you through her teenage years through adulthood prior to the boarding house. Okay. 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 Married as a young teenager, she got pregnant twice, sent one away, gave one up for adoption, miscarried, got divorced, went to jail for forged checks, got pregnant again by a man she didn't really know, placed that child up for adoption, married again, had a shitty 14-year marriage. Okay? Okay. This is hard to keep up with. I know. Then in the 60s, was arrested for owning and managing a brothel, went to jail for 90 days. She continued her criminal career after this, but it amped up in charges until she peaked. She became a nurse's aide and started her career in care, quote-unquote, and also began managing boarding homes. In yet another marriage, she took over a three-story, 16-room boarding home in Sacramento. Many residents liked her, and some said she didn't give the mailer money, so there were a lot of mixed opinions on this woman. Many loved her for her kindness and her cooking. It was clear throughout her criminal history that she's very financially motivated, the murders began after she began renting out rooms in her house. Okay. Okay. In April 1982, 61-year-old Ruth Monroe began living with her in her upstairs apartment, but very shortly after moving in, died from an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, for those of you that don't know. Puente told the police the woman was depressed because her husband was terminally ill and they didn't question it from there. Just a few weeks later, a 74-year-old man accused her of drugging and stealing from him. She was convicted of I know. She was convicted of three charges of theft and sentenced to 5 years in jail. From jail, she started a pen pal friendship with a 77-year-old man with a 77-year-old man named 
Gilmuth, that's his last name, who would pick her up from jail after she served only three years of her five-year sentence. He picked her up in a red 1980 Ford pickup truck. That is important. They soon planned to get married. In November 1985, she hired Ismael Flores to install some wood paneling in her apartment. In addition to money, she also gave him a red Ford pickup that she said her boyfriend no longer needed. She also had him build a box to store some books and other items, quote unquote, and transport it away for storage. On the way to transport it, she was like, oh, just stop here. And she actually had him dump the box in an unofficial household dumping site. In 1986, so about a year later, a fisherman spotted the box and guess what? The body of a badly decomposing elderly man was inside. Oh, poor guy. She had killed Gilmuth and the whole time had been writing letters to his family saying he was ill and continued to collect his pension. She also continued to run her boarding business that whole time accepting elderly tenants. She was typically well-loved amongst the state, like the social workers, because she would not shy away from drug addicts and tenants with abusive tendencies. She would get their mail, and before dispersing it, pocket what she wanted of their money and delegate the cash as she felt was necessary or enough to not get caught, you know, make sure they could get what they needed. While police visited due to her previous charges, no violations were ever noted. So, you know, they would check up on her. She was still on probation, but she was doing all right. Suspicion only arose when she hired a local homeless man to dig up her basement. And after the work was done, he mysteriously went missing. Idiot. (laughs) Not the man. The her. Like, come on. On November 11th, 1988, police came knocking to ask questions about the disappearance of a resident named Alberto Montoya, a developmentally disabled man with schizophrenia whose social worker reported him missing. After noticing a plot of soil disturbed on the property, they uncovered the body of 78-year-old Leona Carpenter. After that, six more bodies were found on the property. She was charged with nine murders. Initially, even though it happened in her house, she was not a suspect. What? Was allowed to leave the property. So guess what she did? She fled. Tried to befriend another elderly man collecting pension, but lucky for him, he recognized her from TV and he turned her ass in. Good. Yep. The prosecution argued she used sleeping pills to put her tenants to sleep would suffocate them and hire convicts to dig the holes in her yard. The jury deliberated for over a month and found her guilty of only three murders instead of all that. So the reason that she was not convicted of all murders is because there was one juror holdout. It was 11 to one. Oh my God. Yeah. She served life in prison without the possibility of parole, maintaining her innocence. She died in 2011 of natural causes at the age of 82. Ghost Adventures has been in the boarding home. 
and it has been featured on several true crime shows. And the owners have recently, as of 2020, been featured on a show called Murder House Flip. <laughs> well, at least they're like, okay, whatever, we bought it. Might as well have yeah. the TV crews come in. Yep, gonna flip this murder house, you know. <laughs> That's some white people shit right there if I've ever played it. But, you know, whatever. The last two that I have are very short, so I'm gonna do them together. So this next one is interesting to me because we've talked about basic killings so far. We've talked about poisoning, hanging, throat slitting, mutilation. But this one's interesting because you don't hear a lot of vampires. So, Fritz mm. Harriman, the vampire of Hanover, who committed the sexual assault, murder, mutilation, and dismemberment, and earned his name for biting his victims in the Adam's apple. Ew. Yeah. Born in 1879, Fritz was motivated by his sickly mother to play with his sister's dolls instead of boys' activities. As a result, Harriman seems to have a bit of a feminine personality. He also had sadistic tendencies in which he would tie up his sisters and also tap windows during the nighttime to get to cause rumors of supernatural creatures that roam about in the middle of the night. Like minus the tying up your sisters part, I could get a, I could do with the uh, tapping on windows to scare your sisters. Like that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Harriman's first known victim was a 17-year-old runaway named Friedel Roth. When Roth disappeared on September 25th, 1918, his friends told police he was last seen with Harriman, who was at the time of his first known murder, resided in a single-room apartment at 27 Sellerstrabe. So this is in Germany, so I'm going to get some of these names wrong, I'm sorry. Under pressure from Roth's family, police raided Harriman's apartment in October 1918, where they found their informer in the company of a semi-naked 13-year-old boy. He no. was charged with both the sexual assault and battery of a minor, and sentenced to nine months imprisonment. Harriman would later state to, de to detectives that at the time they searched his apartment, the head of Friedel Roth, wrapped in newspaper, was stowed behind his stove. <laughs> in 1919, Fritz started a relationship with an 18-year-old boy named Hans Granz, and they moved into a ground-floor apartment by a densely populated area of town located alongside a river. In the following nine months, 12 men were murdered this way, with their dismembered remains being dumped into the river, and their valuables used to provide the two with money. The killings went unnoticed until May 1924, when over 500 human bones belonging to Harriman's victims started washing up downstream in the river. I'd make two cuts in the abdomen and put the intestines in a bucket, then soak up the blood and crush the bones until the shoulders broke. Now I could get the heart, lungs, and kidneys and chop them up and put them in my bucket. I'd take the flesh off the bones and put it in my wax cloth bag. It would take me five or six trips to take everything and throw it down the toilet or in the river. I always hated doing this, but I couldn't help it. My passion was so much stronger than the horror of cutting and chopping. Harriman usually targeted young male commuters and runaways, but also occasionally killed male prostitutes. He found all of the victims hanging around the Hanover Central Station. Luring them into his apartment, Harriman would offer them food or drinks, then kill them by biting through their throats, which he referred to as his love bites. Some of the victims had their blood drank and were also sodomized. The victims would then be dismembered, with their parts being discarded at the river, with the exception of his first victim, whose body was buried in a cemetery, while their possessions were either sold in the black market or kept by Harriman and Granz. April 15, 1925, he was beheaded by a guillotine in Hanover Prison. He killed between 24 and 40-plus people. Jesus. Now, my last one 
there's not a lot of information on, but I wanted to put it in to show that we've had serial killers forever. This isn't even our first known serial killer. The first known one was like 300 BC or something crazy. And this one that I have is from the 1400s. So Guy de Ray. Guy de Ray, born in 1404, was a leader in the French army, companion in arms of Joan of Arc, and secretly a prolific pedophiliac, hebophiliac, and necrophiliac serial killer, serial rapist, and proxy killer. All the bad things. (laughs) He was considered to be one of the first identified serial killers in world history. Ray's first murders occurred between 1431 and 1433 with the help of his accomplices. Ray's kidnapped and killed an unknown number of children. Some were even used in rituals involving alchemy and demon summoning. On one occasion, Ray's provided a contract with a demonic entity named Baron and attempted to summon him, but grew frustrated after no demon manifested. Having been told that Baron demanded the soul of at least one child, Ray's murdered a boy and dismembered him, placing his limbs inside a glass vessel, but again, no demon manifested. On May 15, 1440, Ray's abducted and murdered a cleric, which caught the attention of the Bishop of Nantes, who investigated him and discovered his heinous crimes. Forty bodies of his victims were found. Yeah, why would you do that? Way back then, like the church was all all important. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna look for the archbishop. Um, yeah. <laughs> Ray's was arrested on September 15th and subsequently confessed to the murders and was sentenced to death along with his accomplices. Race was hanged and burned, hanged and burned, on October 26, 1440, at the age of 36. And then here's his like, MO. We're, we're gonna make sure that <laughs> we kill him. So yeah. hang him and burn him. Yeah. Ray's targeted males and females between the ages of six to eighteen. But he was more interested in murdering boys for an unspecified reason. They would be abducted by Ray's accomplices and taken to a secluded place where Ray's would strip them naked. He then hung them with ropes from a hook and tortured, molested, and raped them. Ray's would often tell the children that he only wanted to play with them. After being satisfied, Ray's would order his accomplices to kill them or do it himself. His victims were killed in a variety of ways, mostly with a short double-edged sword called a Barakmard? I don't know, which was used to slash their throats, decapitate them, or dismember them. Ray's would often sit on their stomachs as they were dying. After killing his victims, he would kiss them and mutilate their bodies to admire their limbs and organs. Sometimes, Ray's would even have sex with his victims' mangled bodies. In order to dispose of their bodies, they would be cremated or burned. He killed between 40 to 600 plus. 600? Yes. So that's like a huge margin. They're like, it could be 40. Well, we know we know of 40, but because he was rich and so high up, he had numerous yeah. homes and there are so many things that we really don't know how many he actually did. Yeah. Mm. That's it. Well, we hope you learned some horrible things. <laughs> I mean, it's just unfortunate. Like, you know, this is just part of the human condition unfortunately what's really sad though is yeah it's part of the human condition part of the human condition is taking away another human and that human that gets taken away because this is just part of the human condition doesn't get to experience the rest of their human condition right because you were sadistic and wanted that orgasm or whatever that fix yeah. yeah Like, I know we talk about serial killers because it's interesting, but it's like, obviously, 
horrific. Like, which is, I think, why horror movies are a good thing. I'm not saying I get anything out of watching people get, I don't know, because, like, you know, watching it, it's like, oh, that was such a good kill. It's like, I don't enjoy actually, like, real things, you know? Like, I I don't know. It's weird. I I get what you're saying. I actually feel the same way about video games, where people are like, violent video games, it's terrible. I honestly look at it as an outlet for, to save some people from this. Like, people are just violent, unfortunately. And video games may help that. I mean, people have been violent forever. Like, we were like, people exist and then from that day it's like war you know don't like people that are different from us let's hate and that's just part of the gig i know that's different than serial killers but you know violence and killing and that's just that's just part of it you know but i think that horror and like you said video games hopefully deter not everyone because like these serial killers they're like that's not good enough but that's why I, I like doing the horror movie stuff, you know? That's why I, I'm not a true, like, you know, while we like true crime, like, kudos to true crime podcasts. Because I couldn't, like, talking about serial killers is cool for, like, one episode, you know, for me. Like, I don't think I could talk about murder all the time. Like, real murder. That's why that's I like lot. horror movies. Because I'm like, that was fake. You're an actor. You're an actress. Like, right. that's fun. This shit, like, talking about, like, kids and stuff, I'm like, that makes me, like, sick to my stomach. Because that shit is, that was real. That was somebody's real child. And that child went through real pain and real horror. Yeah. And somebody really did that, you know? Yeah. Well, like we said, four years old, yeah, they didn't do anything to anyone at four. But also, they were just four. They had just started out in this world. and gone yeah they were just born to be killed okay yeah fucked up true crime podcast um what what do you how do you you know i I respect you i think you're interesting i listen to some true crime podcasts i just that's just a lot to take in all the time you know i mean that's heavy shit i guess you don't have to you know, I'm sure there's people that, like, listen to true crime podcasts the way that we watch horror movies, too, you know? It's That's like, true. can separate the, you know, it's just interesting. Like, the same reason that, you know, back when I was younger, I was like, I want to be a forensic psychologist. It's so interesting. I want to know why people do this and why, why, why. Now I'm like, I just, and I'm getting older, I'm getting softer. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I don't want to. It's, it's icky, it's gross. Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it is really interesting. But it's like, I just, I don't know. I'm just I'm too soft, I guess. I'm getting getting old. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know? Now, spree killers, I find maybe that's, I just, I've just always, even when I wanted to do like forensic stuff, I was always really more into like how somebody could like plan a mass. Like, so I, you know, I wouldn't mind doing an episode on that eventually too. Like super interesting stuff. Yeah, I'd be down. I mean, it's all again. I don't. I'm not trying to talk in circles. It's all really interesting. It's just so dark, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah. Well, we hope you enjoyed. I guess that would be the word. This little sect into, or dive into this alternative little dimension. I guess it's, it's not horror, but you know, human horror, real shit. 
you know. Hey, not really all movies about serial killers. They overlap. Yeah, yeah. Real life horror. Mm -hmm. They do. And, you know, like we said in the beginning, I think if you like horror, you probably also, the, the it's reasonable to think you also like true crime, you yeah. know, at least to some extent. So. I'm fascinated by both, so. Me too, yeah. It just hurts my heart that people die. Yeah. Like it all, you know. I know that's part of the gig, but <laughs> like, or die in tragic ways, or like in fear of someone else. Like, that's. Yeah. If I put myself in their shoes, it's fucking terrifying. That, that's, it, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Like, by someone taking your life, that's not. Yeah, that's scary. So. But yeah, we, uh, again, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned. I hope you heard about some serial killers you hadn't heard about because that's really what we wanted to yeah. do. Like, you know, we we know you know about Ted Bundy. Everybody knows about Ted Bundy. Right. That's tired. We've been there, done that. But uh, yeah, you can find us on all of our social media platforms. You know where we are. We're Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, The Extra Sisters or The Extra Sisters Podcast. Come find us. Come hang out with us. We'd love to have you. Until next time, stay creepy.